morning, I drink my coffee, stand in the sun, listen to the birds, write in a gratitude journal, and I do random nature studies throughout the day, taking photos. Those are some of the things I do for self-care. The past two years have been stressful. In September 2020, more than a quarter of U.S. adults reported symptoms of depression. That's a threefold increase from before the pandemic began. For people with lower incomes or those who lost a job or a loved one, the rates were even higher. The upheaval and uncertainty of the pandemic means that for some of us, taking care of and treating ourselves is more important than ever. Now, the treat yourself mentality is nothing new. You're probably familiar with this parks and recreation scene. Once a year, Donna and I spend a day treating ourselves. What do we treat ourselves to? Clothes. Treat yourself. Fragrances. Treat yourself. Massages. Treat yourself. Mimosas. Treat yourself. Fine leather goods. Treat yourself. But if you're facing a lack of money, time, or resources, treating yourself may feel self-indulgent, if not altogether out of reach. So how do we care for ourselves during times like this? We'll get into it after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, download our 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a voicemail. Today, we're discussing self-care, what it is, what it isn't, and why it's so necessary now. Joining us is Dr. Pooja Lakshman. She's a psychiatrist specializing in women's mental health. She's also the founder and CEO of Gemma. That's a digital education platform focused on women's mental health and equity. Her book, Real Self-Care, Make Wellness Your Own from the Inside Out, comes out early next year. Dr. Lakshman, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. Also with us is Dr. Ariane Miller. She's a licensed psychologist and professor of multicultural counseling and social justice education at San Diego State University. Dr. Miller, happy to have you. Thank you for having me. And with us, Amanda Mall. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she writes a column on consumerism. Amanda, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. So, Dr. Lakshman, I want to start with some basic definitions. How do you define self-care? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I really focused on in working on my book is how do we really pull the veil back on this word that we're using, self-care? And my definition of real self-care is that it's actually not a noun. It's a verb. It's an ongoing internal process that guides us towards self-derived well-being. And, and it doesn't come by kind of shortcuts or life hacks or juice cleanses, as, as fun as those things might be. But instead, it, it means that we're working on our own self-awareness, being kind to ourselves, and, and ultimately working on making difficult decisions, which is certainly much, much harder for women of color, for folks that don't have financial resources. So we, we constantly need to be bringing our social context into the conversation of self-care. I just like to state for the record, I've done one juice cleanse in my life and it was it was not fun. Uh, Dr. Miller, what about you? How do you define self-care? Yeah, I completely agree. Um, you know, I define it as engaging in behaviors that promote and sustain your health and well-being, and that includes body, mind, and spirit. 
as well as preventing and managing illness, stress, and burnout is usually the definition that I give to people when asked. Amanda, what about you? Well, I have sort of um, an interesting relationship to the contrast, to the concept of self-care, I think, because I mostly see the world, uh, at least through my work, through the lens of consumerism and through the lens of uh, privatization and um, and materialism. So the concept of self-care, I, as it's used really commonly now, and I know that there's a lot of people doing like really, really great work to try to peel this back a little bit, but the, the way I see it invoked most now and the way that I use it when, when I'm talking about it generally is sort of this, uh, to refer to a, a suite of products and services that are um, generally marketed to usually women, um, for uh, maintenance of the body, maintenance of the mind. Um, it can include beauty products, bath products, um, different types of apps, services, things like that. Um, so I take a little bit more of a materialist view, I suppose. Now, Dr. Miller, as Amanda just said, you know, self-care means something different in the context of psychology than it does, say, online. Um, we've been marketed self-care in the form of things like face masks and vitamins and bubble baths. What do you think self-care is not? I think self, so, you know, I define self-care in terms of the, the things that we do, um, but it is not just the things that we do. So I also agree that self-care is a process, right? Um, and so the idea that, that, so treats could be a part of self-care, but treats in and of themselves are not self-care. They're not uh, sufficient to do that. And so just the cleanse or the afternoon uh, cup of coffee pick-me-up um, can be a part of that, but they're, they're really not um, sufficient. And I think a lot of the sort of one-time things that we do um, are really just won't work for most people on a regular basis. Let's go to this voicemail we got from Amy in Oregon. Self-care was really difficult for me during the pandemic. I had two teenagers who were doing their sophomore and senior years at home, and one began suffering from really serious anxiety and depression. My husband, on the other hand, found time for self-care and did workshops and all sorts of things, and we are now divorcing. <laughs> um, so I'm not sure what the lesson is in that, but when there's sort of inequity in terms of accessing self-care, it can create problems of its own. Now, Dr. Lakshman, self-care, especially when it's linked to consumerism, it's not accessible for everyone. What are some of the challenges your patients face when trying to care for themselves? Absolutely. So in my practice, um, and, and I specialize in women's mental health as a psychiatrist, so what I call this is the tyranny of self-care. Mm -hmm. So this is the woman, just like the caller who said, you know, she's, she's juggling keeping her job, caring for loved ones and her teenage kids, barely keeping things afloat, and then somehow kind of feeling like it's all her fault because she can't meditate. She doesn't have time to make a gratitude list. And I wrote about this last year for the New York Times Primal Scream series that, that this isn't burnout, that this is betrayal, um, and that the fact that the answer we're being sold to these huge collective social problems is supposed to be kind of a face mask is <laughs> insulting to my patients and, and to me. Uh, but on the positive side, and uh, I think the, the listener kind of speaking to this a little bit, that I do think we're at a tipping point. You know, I'm seeing more and more patients 
coming to me and bringing into sessions, you know, I want to talk about microaggressions. I want to talk about unpaid domestic labor. I want to talk about equity. And so I think there is a collective awakening, just like Amanda was saying, that, you know, the problems are not inside of us, that it's the system. And why are we being sold these solutions when we actually have an understanding that we need something deeper and something more real when it comes to self-care? Uh, Dr. Miller, the idea of self-care was was first conceptualized by the Black feminist and civil rights activist Autry Lord in the 80s. And she wrote that for marginalized groups, quote, caring for myself is not self-indulgence. It is self-preservation. And that is an act of political warfare, end quote. But you've talked about how the idea of self-care can be exclusionary, especially for women of color. Why is that? Well, I think, um, as was just said, not everyone has access to it. And part of what's going on, I think, in the in, on social media and in sort of in the public is that it has become kind of um, a treat culture. It's associated with luxury and it's associated with indulgence. And I think the kind of tragedy of that is that both people feel like, well, I'm supposed to do this thing called self-care, but I work two or three jobs just to survive, support my children. There's no child care. There's no safety net. Health insurance is really difficult. So I don't really have time for this. And these small acts or treats are both out of reach and insufficient at the same time. And so that's leaving a huge number of people out of it. I also think, even though we've been calling it self-care, for a lot of people, they really think of themselves, they have a collectivist view on their life and self, and they view themselves as a part of family and their community. So just thinking about themselves doesn't work for them because it feels like they're pulling themselves away from the very people that they're connected to and need to also be taken care of. And I think that leaves a lot of people out as well. Now, Amanda, you were on the show back in 2019 talking about how the wellness industry became synonymous with self-care. I think that self-care has been sort of co-opted by uh, a a lot of brands uh, looking to sell particular things and uh, sort of transformed into a a term that refers to a type of product that you buy and then use uh, in your personal grooming routines or in your relaxation routines. It can be, you know, uh, bath products or skincare products or things like that. Amanda, how did How have you seen the wellness industry capitalize on the pandemic in terms of how they advertise these types of products? Well, I think that that... um that that sentiment that that I expressed a couple of years ago has only expanded during the pandemic. Um, we have seen, of course, in the past two years, a real explosion in, in online sales, um, people looking to uh, get new things that they need for new lifestyles, uh, avoid stores, things like that. And it has resulted in a lot of things being marketed as sort of quasi self-care products that were just products before the pandemic. I think that both the the turn to new types of buying and new types of consumer patterns, plus this sort of like existential dread that everybody feels really opened up the opportunity for marketers to paint virtually anything as a self-care product. If it's something you need, it is self-care to buy it essentially, um, which is, you know, a, a very sort of individualist view of things. Consumerism is is fundamentally individualist. And, uh, you know, people of all types have, have 
encountered a lot of new novel problems over the last years, whether those are functional or mental or or whatever. And I think that um, a lot of different types of brands and companies have seen an opportunity to uh, sell themselves as sort of uh, a salve to, to those, even if they're just selling like cookware or now, something like that. The wellness industry largely targets women, but how are men being targeted, care, marketed self-care rather, if they are at all? Well, I think that uh, people marketing products to men have picked up a lot of the tricks of the trade from the wellness industry and the beauty industry. So if you can if you can expand the idea of selling uh, a moisturizer as self-care out to selling uh, home decor or cookware or types of food or whatever else is self-care um, – then, you know, men are stressed out too. Men have uh, existential anxieties. Men have worries about their health. Men have worries about their families. Um, They're stressed out. Work is stressful. So anything that might solve one of those problems, I think that if you find the right language for it, you can can sell a grill to men as self-care. You can sell supplements to men as self-care. It is a a concept that has been so stretched by the forces of marketing that um, anybody who, who... you know, is feeling a little down or has any type of negative emotion is potentially a a target for this type of marketing. A member of our text club wrote, I think self-care has become the new phrase the wellness industry is using as an advertising strategy. Self-care isn't always massages and facials. Sometimes it's doing something difficult, like evaluating our long-standing beliefs or going to the dentist after not going for two years because of the pandemic. Dr. Lakshman, the treat-yourself mentality is focused on, on pleasure and sometimes luxury. I don't know how much anyone would look forward to going to the dentist, but why is it important to think of maybe these less glamorous forms of self-care? Yeah, absolutely. So if we look at the research of kind of categories of of well-being, there's the hedonic well-being, which is more of the treat-yourself, pleasure-focused, what feels good in the moment. And then there's eudaimonic well-being, which is actually focus more on meaning and purpose. And so when you go to the dentist, like Dr. Miller was saying, you're telling yourself, my health matters. My health matters to me. My health matters to my family. This is important and this is what I value. So you're exerting agency. And I think the frame, one of the frameworks that I use when I'm talking about real self-care is how can I exert agency over my life? And so much of what the listeners have been saying in this uh, segment has been about making deliberate decisions and reclaiming agency in a world that feels very out of out of control whether that's because of health issues or whether that's because of financial stressors so when we we talk about eudaimonic well-being we're really looking at meaning and purpose Mm -hmm. which unfortunately does fit with going to the dentist Uh, Amanda, I'm curious how this shows up in the consumer realm. How does the wellness industry package certain products to to maybe give us a sort of sense of, of control when we don't feel like we have a lot of control of our circumstances? Well, I think that... Um a large part of consumer culture is about control uh, because there, there is a very real sense that, you know, your purchase decisions are a, an enormous arena in which you assert agency 
in your life. Um, you decide which uh, which things you're, you'll spend your money on. You decide which brands you'll support. Sometimes, uh, especially in the past ten years or so, that takes on a real um, a real explicitly political um, bent. Um, but I, I think that uh, when brands really successfully uh, assert that purchasing their products is is a way to um, to do politics, is a way to um, assert um, your identity, is a way to express yourself. You get into some really shaky territory uh, because you you get pretty far away from from understanding what it actually means to like take care of yourself and what would actually enable you to take better care of yourself and of the people around you. Um, A lot of those, the things that people actually need are pretty collectivist. They are public services. They are things that like state capacity could provide, um, whether it's medical care or access to to better food or um, labor laws that allow people to have more time to themselves while still earning enough to to pay all their expenses. Um, But those are are big things. Those are really, really difficult to get, especially in the system that Americans live in. So you You've got people who feel disenfranchised, who feel um, like they don't really have any control over the things that are harming them in their lives, um, but they have a, an iPhone and they have a credit card and there are a lot of businesses willing to intervene um, on that feeling of, of lack of control that they have and, and tell them that, well, one way that you can assert some control is to buy whatever it is you have been browsing hmm. in the past week that we know about by based on your you know, search tracking data. So so it's a it's a really convenient position to be in for for companies selling consumer products when when you're in a society and a culture where people feel like they don't have a lot of control. We'll be back with our conversation on self-care in just a moment. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get back to our discussion on self-care with this message from Patricia in Tallahassee. During the pandemic, I decided to raise monarch butterflies. I did my research and learned that it was a relatively inexpensive proposition. I also learned quickly that the rewards of watching the metamorphosis provided me with much-needed hope in a time when we were all living in an uncertainty and darkness. Raising monarchs allowed me to engage in a life-affirming activity. Releasing them when they were ready for the world gave me hope for the future. Patricia, thanks for leaving us that message. Dr. Lakshman, I'm curious to hear what you think of Patricia's message. How does self-care help us remain hopeful about the future of the future and avoid burnout? Absolutely. So I, I, I actually think that that's such a beautiful story. So thank you, Patricia, for sharing that. And the word hope is really important here because when we talk about hope, we don't mean blind optimism or toxic positivity. We actually mean um, acknowledging everything that's outside of our control and all the systemic constraints, especially if you're from a marginalized group. Uh, but But in spite of that, knowing that you have agency. So like Patricia was saying, in spite of that, she took action. She found an activity that felt meaningful for her, and she was able to exert her own sense of agency in the world. 
So when we're talking about hope, there really is a connection there. And I, and I do think it comes back to that agency where you you can take an action and then see an impact in the world around you and see how it helps you feel better. Here's an email we got from Michael who says, I'm a social worker specializing in children with serious mental health issues. The higher ups in my organization love to encourage self-care, but they don't actually do anything that would support that. We are pressured into taking on higher caseloads. Our salaries haven't grown at all as we face massive inflation, and we're forced to use personal vacation days for basic health needs. Amanda, I'm curious how you've seen sort of the marketing consumerism language around self-care infiltrate workspaces? I think that's a really interesting topic. And uh, the the concept of workplace wellness programs is something of a, of a pet topic of mine um, because the, the ways in which uh, wellness products are marketed to individuals has sort of um, gone past the realm of the individual and infiltrated how um, HR departments and executive uh, boards sort of uh, deal with their employees. Um, So in workplaces, you end up with um, programs designed to help workers meditate, programs designed to help workers uh, avoid burnout um, or think about productivity and things like that. And they're generally, you know, uh, conducted by consultants. They get paid a lot of money for this. And they they offer, you know, some ideas to employees, but they sort of circumvent what the actual problem is. Uh, they talk around the actual problem, which is that a lot of workers don't have much agency in their workplaces. A lot of workers don't have uh, much flexibility ability to to be people um, when they're on the clock and don't have a lot of flexibility to get off the clock when they need to. Um, The the person who wrote in spoke about um, having to take PTO to go to the doctor, which I think is um, bonkers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) to put it flatly, Um, because, you know, we're all human beings. We have to, we have, we have these essential functions. Doctors are open at the same time as most people are at work. Um, How, how are we supposed to mediate that? And in workplaces, you know, the vast majority of workers in the United States don't have a union that can help them advocate for systemic changes in their workplaces. So until you have, uh, you know, actual, real, codified, reliable um, benefits uh, that are guaranteed by, by your employer, I don't think all of the uh, employee seminars about meditation or burnout are going to do a whole lot, but they, they allow employers to, to act like they're um, concerned in doing something. Here's a tweet we got from Susan who says, don't forget about team care within the concept of self-care. Some of us are better at taking care of our, of others than ourselves. Now, Dr. Miller, we've been talking about self-care on an individual level, and the term self-care implies that it's something you do yourself, for yourself. But how can we bring others, our, our loved ones, our family, our community into that practice? Um, absolutely. I think it's a, a great question. You know, um, one of the things we kind of know about behaviors um, and changing behaviors and changing habits is that it's really helpful to have some accountability. And partly what that means is doing it with other people. Sometimes that can just mean telling someone else, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start walking or I'm going to start some new thing that makes me um, feel healthier or that is good for my health. Um, or doing it with people. So people start running groups and walking groups or reading groups or book groups or just time to kind of connect. Um, 
You know, and I do think that we need a shift from thinking about, you know, the point even about in, in corporations and organizations, y- you can't just sort of tell the workers or tell one person to take care of themselves. They, they need the support and the other, the other things around them to make self-care on an individual level possible. So everyone, you know, when other people around you, your family members, your community members, are also taking really good care of themselves, it makes it more possible and easier for you to do it. And that's both, you know, corporations, organizations, and families. I want to talk about another piece of this (laughs) as it relates to the people and and the, you know, organizations or institutions in our life, Dr. Lexman, and that's that's boundary setting. Uh, You wrote an essay in 2019 titled, Saying No is Self-Care for Parents. How do we set boundaries, especially during the pandemic, and use that as a form of self-care? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, when I teach about self-care boundaries, the way that I frame boundaries are essentially they're the limiting reagent to self-care. Without boundaries, there is no real self-care. And instead of focusing on all the products and all the different wellness strategies that are being sold to us, instead, if we turn some of that off and we... uh, learn to say no. And again, this is really difficult to do. In my practice, what I see working with women is, is we usually know when, when we'd like to, you know, turn down a social invitation or when we'd like to tell our boss, hey, I actually can't work this weekend, but we feel guilty. We feel guilty letting down our team members. We feel guilty, um, you know, hurting the feelings of people in our lives that are close to us. So a lot of the work around setting boundaries is also learning to tolerate your own guilt. Mm. And uh, like Dr. Miller was saying, there also is, uh, it's important to remember privilege here too, because if you are financially constrained, it's going to be scarier to set a boundary with your workplace and, and with the possibility of potentially losing your job or something like that. So we always have to keep that in mind. But in the end, boundaries are the backbone of real self-care because you have to reclaim that space for yourself. And only then can you go on to make uh, decisions that are aligned with your values and with agency. Well, then when we talk about managing that guilt, is, is that a place where curiosity comes into play again, where we should just spend some time thinking about why? Why do I feel guilty about saying no to this thing? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So especially for women, the way that I think about guilt is that it's almost like a faulty check engine light. It's always there, (laughs) no matter what choice you seem to make, especially if you're a caretaker. um, And if you're somebody who really focuses a lot of your identity on being there for your community or your family, uh, it can feel really hard to set a limit with that guilt. But if you think of it as sort of a check engine light, guilt doesn't actually provide any meaningful information for us. It doesn't need to be your compass. It can just be a feeling that's there. So if we visualize kind of a volume dial, we can turn the volume down on guilt. We're probably never going to be able to be completely free of it, but we don't need to be controlled by it. Amanda, I want to turn back to the consumerism piece of this for a moment, because a lot of people 
lost the ability to connect with others in real life during the pandemic, whether it was coworkers, um, friends or family. You know, we spent a lot of time in front of screens. And I think a lot of us felt very isolated. How did that play a role in this this treat yourself idea and, and turn into a way of self-soothing? Absolutely. I think that, you know, the the changes in the circumstances of everyday life uh, at the beginning of the pandemic uh, were profound for nearly everybody. Um, so when you lose your routines, when you lose a lot of your face-to-face interaction, when you lose the activities that might have um, fulfilled you or given you um, space to um, be yourself or enjoy yourself uh, all at once, uh, that is like a, a you know, a really, really harmful, profound thing to happen to people. So if you're at home, if you can't really go anywhere, if uh, you might not have the things that you feel like you need in order to adapt to this new life, um, of course, you're going to start buying things. Um, and, And some of that is going to be functional. Some of that is going to be emotional. And some of it's going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, And I think that it is totally understandable that a lot of people sort of turned to um, shopping, turned to ordering things in order to uh, soothe themselves in some way, uh, because shopping is is a really powerful um, thing. It does it, the brain chemicals it releases are are satisfying. They are um, something that some people don't know how to get other ways or don't have a good way to to access, especially in situations like the beginning of the pandemic. So I, I think that it is really natural and was really um, something that should have been expected that people started, especially people who retained their jobs, suddenly weren't eating out, weren't traveling, weren't spending a lot of money on experiences, would turn that money towards the consumer market because it was really all that was left if you had disposable income. Um, so I, I think it's totally understandable and totally and something that people shouldn't feel bad about having done, um, but also something that if we if we want to make the future better, if we want to give people more ways to to deal with their problems and to address these types of stresses that we need to think critically about and um, and and figure out why that was the thing people did and how we can give people other more meaningful, less um, costly ways to to soothe in the future. I want to read this tweet we got from Keith, who says, I'm a self-employed male attorney. Men don't do self-care well. I exercise with my dog multiple times a day. If I can, I get sleep. I drink plenty of water. How should men care for themselves? Dr. Miller? Well, I, you know, I think it's about what does that particular man need or want, you know, and I think this also relates to the conversation about what happened during the pandemic and that we need to start thinking about the why of people's self-care. Um, and so when I, when I, whether I'm talking to men or anyone else, you know, someone will say, okay, I exercise, right? And they, I run several times a week. The question becomes, why do you run several times a week? What is that doing for you? Does that make you feel stronger? Does it make you feel healthier? Do you have asthma and you can breathe better? Do you meet people on the street? And at the end of the day, what purpose is that serving? So that in the context of the pandemic, people lost what they normally did, but I think they didn't really know how to then fill that gap. And so for men, because so much of self-care is marketed to women, I do think they're left with a question about what they specifically should do, but there is no one answer. The question is, how do you, wanna, how do you feel and function at your best? 
How do you want to sort of walk through your life? When do you feel healthy? When do you feel strong and good about yourself? And what are the specific things that you need to do that will allow you to feel that way? Uh, Dr. Lakshman, we've just got a a few seconds left here. Uh, What questions should we be asking ourselves on the other side of this conversation as we think about how to care for ourselves? Absolutely. Well, I think it's first important to remember that we can't meditate ourselves out of a 40-hour work week without childcare. And instead, we need to turn inward. We need to be curious about what brings value to our lives. And we need to really look at what has us feel meaning as well when it comes to self-care. That's Dr. Pooja Lakshman, a physician specializing in women's mental health and the founder and CEO of Gemma. That's a digital education platform focused on women's mental health. Also with us, Dr. Arianne Miller, a licensed psychologist and assistant professor of multicultural counseling and social justice education at San Diego State University. We were also joined by Amanda Mull, staff writer at The Atlantic. Amanda, Dr. Miller, Dr. Lakshman, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Colleen Graplick. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A.